We're going to read two different passages here, one from 1 Corinthians and one from Romans. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming. Romans 6, 8-14 Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Father, thank you for your words to us this morning. Thank you for our Savior who is the Word, who became flesh, and who represented you in perfection. We pray that you would work in our hearts this morning, strengthen us by your grace and by your Spirit, that we would walk in righteousness, and that your name would be lifted high, that you would receive the glory that you deserve. Jesus is alive, and we shall be alive with him forever. Praise his holy name. Good morning on this beautiful Resurrection Sunday with the sun out. As you know, the event that we celebrate this morning is uh, its absolutely foundational to our faith as believers in Jesus Christ. It, it was pointed out this morning uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul said, if Christ is not risen from the dead... Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. But of course, if you keep reading in that passage, Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection. The reason he was able to say that, of course, was because Paul had met the resurrected Christ on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus when he was a, a militant enemy of Christ and of Christians, Jesus appeared to him and changed him forever. And Paul knew of many other people who had seen the resurrected Christ. He, he talks in that same chapter about 500 people seeing him at one time. And he says, many of those people are still around. If you want to talk to them, I'll give you their names. That was essentially what he was saying when he said, many of them are still here. The resurrection is is the pivotal event, the crucifixion and the resurrection is the pivotal event in all of the, the history of mankind. In Romans 1, verse 4, Paul said, 
that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That means that Jesus proved that He is who He claimed to be when He was raised from the dead. And He proved, he proved something else. In Isaiah 53, which was written nearly seven centuries before Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecies in that chapter, it says the Father is essentially saying to the Son that if He would render Himself as a guilt offering for the sins of others, God would prolong His days. He would have many offspring. The good pleasure of the Lord would prosper in His hand. It says by by His knowledge, the righteous one, My servant, will justify the many. And it says He, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. He will see it and be satisfied. The resurrection of Christ is proof that Christ's payment of the debt of our sin when He died on the cross in our place is satisfactory to God. That it completely met God's requirement. It satisfied God's anger against us. Every one of us who has sinned in His eyes who comes to faith in Christ benefits from that marvelous gift. But that's still not all that the resurrection accomplished. It proved that Jesus is who He said He he is and that He did what He came to accomplish the first time. But it accomplished something else. And that something else is what I want to focus on this morning. And that is what the resurrection changed for us who believe in Christ now. First of all, of course, the resur- His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Right there in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that He's the first fruits of the resurrection and we are then the latter fruits. It's because He was raised that we know that we will be raised. And that's, uh, that's absolutely huge. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says about us that these mortal fleshly bodies that are decaying and dying are going to be replaced. He says that which was sown in dishonor will be raised in honor. That which was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. That which was sown in weakness will be raised in power. That which was sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. And then he goes on to say, that this mortality will be replaced by immortality. It's just an amazing truth that because Jesus was raised from the dead, we will live forever in new bodies that God has prepared for us, that God transformed. He's going to take these and He's going to transform them. And they will be immortal. And they won't be aging anymore, which will be really nice for those of us who who know what that's like. That future resurrection will make... Think about this. That future resurrection will make our bodies fit for the presence of our ascended Lord. Our bodies will be as pure and untouched by the curse as His is. But there's still another facet of the resurrection of Christ that that tends to sort of drift off our radar sometimes. And it's 
again, it's miraculous. It's marvelous. It's exceedingly powerful. And it has to do with what has been given to us by God to live the Christian life. See, according to the Apostle Paul in the passage in Romans that that was just read, that Patrick just read, we have been raised up with Christ already. It says, Paul says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And and he's saying that in present tense. We are alive from the dead. And in in that entire passage, the real theme that Paul is getting at is that that the resurrection life God has already given to you and me as believers in, in Jesus Christ, it enables us to live lives that are holy, that are righteous, that are pleasing to God. In fact, that's the only way that we can live lives that are pleasing to God. What changed when you came to faith in Jesus Christ? What changed about you and your abilities And your tendencies, what changed about your nature? That's really the question. Yeah, everything. Well, first, Paul says in Romans 6 that you died to sin. He says you were, you were buried with Christ in baptism. You were associated or identified with Him in His death. And then you were raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. that means that you have been you have been brought to life and given new newness of life. You have been given resurrection life. In our study of Ephesians, we saw over and over that Paul talked about the new man. He talked about he talked about the the reality that we have been the old nature has been replaced, and we are now in Christ, and we are growing up in maturity together into that one new man who is the head of the body, Jesus Christ. We died to sin. I'm going to put, uh, if I can get it back up here, Romans 6. And he, Paul says that the death that Christ died, He died to sin once for all. The life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And he says in in verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members, that means the parts of your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What does it mean that sin shall not be master over you? It means you're you're not enslaved to sin. You used to be, but you're not anymore. That means sin has no power over you. And that's, that is a very, very big deal. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, Paul says, he says that the new man that you put on in Christ, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's your new nature. That's your new identity. 
Is that how you think of yourself? As one who has been created in righteousness and holiness that matches up with God's truth? All of the exhortations that we find in the New Testament epistles that tell us what we are to stop doing and what we are to start doing and keep doing as children of God are predicated on, they are based on the simple reality that we're not who we used to be. That, that we have, we have gone from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. That we have gone from being enslaved by sin to being liberated from that slavery so that sin no longer has any power over us. Is that how you think of yourself? Over and over in Paul's letters, his exhortations to us to put off sin and to put on righteousness, they are all framed in these kinds of words. Put off the old man and put on the new man. The the Christian life is not about resolving to stop sinning. The Christian life is about laying hold of and embracing an entirely new nature that is true of you. That wasn't true of you before. In fact, Paul says you, you've already put off the old man and put on the new man. God did that. He's the one who, he crucified your old self and he made you new in Christ. And the Christian life is about you and I just laying claim to that, living that out acting and behaving in keeping with that re- with that truth with that reality so paul says you have put off the old man you have put on the new man so put off the old man and put on the new man do put into practice that which is actually true that right there is is a synopsis of how sanctification works put into practice that which god has made true of you that's not the way we tend to view sanctification. We tend to view it as this wrestling match that, that we're engaged in with our, this old, this old nature in order to live well. We, we live as, we, we tend to think and to act as if we have to somehow coax the old nature into behaving well. We have to take a sinful predisposition and turn it somehow into a godly predisposition. And and the Word tells us that's not how this works. That's not what's going on. We have died in Christ and we have been raised again to newness of life and we're not who we used to be. The very essence of what, what the New Testament epistles tell us, especially Paul's letters, is be who you are, not who you aren't. Be who you are in Christ. Live that identity. Live that power. And stop acting like you're still who you used to be because that guy's dead. This is so vitally important. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, flee immorality. And then he tells us why. Because your body is a walking, talking temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
In Ephesians 4, verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And that, that command comes in the context of a bunch of commands about not letting unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, about putting aside malice and anger and slander and envy, about turning away from the behaviors that tear the body of Christ apart. He says, do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, the rationale that he gives you for not doing all those divisive and selfish things is that you've been signed, sealed, and are soon to be delivered into the presence of a holy God who's made you fit to dwell in His presence by clothing you in the righteousness of Christ. So he's telling us to to live in keeping with that which is true of us. Ephesians 5 He says, don't participate in the deeds of darkness. Why? Because you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Be who you are, not who you aren't. Colossians 3, he says, do not lie to one another because you laid aside the old man with with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the in keeping with, that is, according to or in keeping with the image of the one who created him. You know what God did to you when he saved you? He turned you back into a good image bearer of God. The image of God was so corrupted in you before that that people couldn't look at you and see God. Now they can. Because God has transformed your nature In Romans 6, verse 11, he says, because you were buried with Christ in His death and raised with Him in His resurrection and you now have newness of life, he says, therefore, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Reckon, that's a good Texan word. I reckon that I'm, that I'm now alive from the dead in Christ. What it means, the word reckon means to mentally, deliberately take an accounting. Okay? It means to count as true that which is true. And in Paul's letters, you will find over and over these references to to mind words. Reckon, think, consider, set your mind on, let your mind dwell on, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why is that important? Because God intends that your mind will be the gateway to your heart. He's going to change your behavior by changing your mind. Did you know that the the most dominant, the most frequent word in in Greek for repent? It means a change of mind. I'm not saying it doesn't imply a change of behavior. I'm saying God gets to the behavior through the mind through a renewed mind. If you think that living out the resurrection life that you've been given in Christ is about taking that old sin-enslaved nature and convincing that nature to behave, you need to ditch that whole paradigm and start over with what God says. Reckoning as true that which God says is true of you. That you've been recreated 
in righteousness and holiness to live for Christ. Trying to get a sin nature to be godly is like trying to tame a rabid dog. It's just not going to happen. When you do try to live a godly life on that basis, which is, it's, I believe it's how many Christians attempt to live the Christian life, your days are going to be filled with discouragement. Instead of trusting in God's promise that you are who He says you are and acting on that promise, you're going to be trusting in your performance. And you're going to be constantly looking at how you're doing to try to decide who you are and whether you really, whether you really are moving forward in Christ. And what you're really going to be doing, guys, is you're going to be on a performance treadmill because you cannot make yourself godly. We put off the old man and we put on the new man. How do you do that? I've already said it, it starts with the mind, a change of mind, and, and really that change of mind is about agreeing with God. Again, a little Greek word that many of you have heard before, homologeo, that's the word for confess. You know what that means? It means one word, same word. It means we say the same thing that God says. And throughout the Bible, confession means that you're agreeing with God, with what He has revealed to be true. And so if I confess that which God says is true of me in Christ, that means I am confessing to Him, I am agreeing with Him that I am a new creature. That the old things have passed away and new things have come. That I am not enslaved to sin. That in fact... I have been recreated in righteousness and holiness. That's my real nature. That's, that's what's true of me in Christ. Again, Romans 6, Therefore, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus. Romans 12, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that you may bear out in real life that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ephesians 4, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on on earth, because you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. That's what's true. This is as practical as practical gets. Putting on resurrection life right now starts with thinking true things. You can believe something and if someone pulls you into a courtroom and asks you to testify to what you believe, you'll get it right. But if you never think about it, if you go through day after day after day and and that thing that you believe is not in your thoughts, Is it going to change anything about your behavior? Well, God's at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. So He's he's going to be reminding you. But, But there are a lot of Christians who just, they go through their days with their minds filled with passive garbage. I know because I've spent a whole lot of my life in that mode. Lately, I've been asking God to take my self-talk and turn it into God-talk. And that's a beautiful thing when it happens. When instead of just 
you know, the mind rehearsing all these scenarios and going through all this nonsense. I'm actually talking to God because we've talked about this before. It's hard to lie to God when you're talking to Him. Living the resurrection life is about counting as true day by day, moment by moment, that which God declares to be true. It is a reckoning process. That's where it starts. When you're struggling with a persistent sin, what are you counting to be true? Do you think of yourself as powerless to overcome that sin? Do you think of yourself as still enslaved by that sin? Isn't that what you're saying if you, if you say that you have no power to overcome the sin? Isn't that, aren't you saying that you're still enslaved by it? That it has power over you? Is that true for a Christian? Is that true for a Christian that sin controls you? That's one of the most pernicious, nefarious lies that a Christian can possibly believe that he cannot choose righteousness. That he has not been given the power to choose righteousness. Guys, righteousness is the nature of a believer. It's like saying I can't act in keeping with who I am. Or do you agree with God that your old sin nature was crucified with Christ and that you have been raised in newness of life, filled with the Holy Spirit of God who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think? That you have been given the very power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him above every authority, all power, all dominion, every name that is named in this age and in the age to come? Which of those two ways of reckoning honors God and which one doesn't? Which one of those do you think is going to be associated with a change of behavior? If laying hold of the resurrection life that God has given to you, which in the New Testament epistles is foundational to living a godly life, If laying hold of the resurrection life is strongly connected with your thought life, then how does your thinking get changed? Well, first it gets changed by what you fill it with. (laughs) There was a book by uh, Larry Crabb called Inside Out, and there was one thing in that book that I'll never forget. He said, you got to change the tapes. This is back in the days of cassette tapes. Nobody knows what those are anymore. (laughs) you got to change the tapes that are playing in your head. And, and that means, see, that doesn't happen passively. That means that your thought life has to stop being something that happens to you. And you have to put it under the control of Christ. Isn't that what Paul says? Second Corinthians 10, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Does that sound passive? The most critically important habit that you will ever develop in your life is to regularly spend time camping out in God's Word. Because that is the beautiful truth that God intends to use to replace your tapes. And it doesn't get in here by osmosis. Especially not when we live in a world that is so filled with lies that it doesn't matter which direction you turn, they're bombarding you from every angle. 
Get real familiar with God's promises to you and to your fellow saints. To use Paul's language, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. That doesn't happen when our thoughts just happen. A promise that you can't remember isn't going to change the way you think. Fill your mind with God's Word in order to fill your life with Him. That See, the point of having His Word ritually dwell in you is not so that you'll know the five steps to resisting temptation. It's so that you will know the One who empowers you to resist temptation. So that you will know the One who has given you His life. Your thinking change changes or is determined by what you fill your mind with. It's also affected by what you talk to God about. Do you spend more time talking to God about how you feel or about what He says? I've said this before. The most transforming prayers in my life have been the prayers in which I was simply, I was simply confessing back to God what He says. Looking at His promises and saying, yes, Lord, You're right. This is what's true. And and in detail, restating His promises and thanking Him for them. It's amazing how that at the beginning of a day affects the rest of a day. We need to get back to the habit of praying back to God what He has said, not, not how we feel or what we think about it. What he's said about the outrageous blessings and power and usefulness that he has lavished upon us in Christ. What we've been talking about for the last 28 weeks in Ephesians. (laughs) The unfathomable riches of Christ. If you're still doing battle to overcome a besetting sin that's been part of your experience for years, consider the difference between these two prayers. And the words don't matter. These aren't formulas at all the first one would go something like this lord i beg you to deliver me from this sin i've tried as hard as i can i've been doing everything that i can think of to get this away from me and it just keeps coming back it's been going on for years lord would you help me would you deliver me from this sin that's one that's that's the first example here's the second Thank You, Father, for blessing me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank You, Father, for for making mine the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and put Him above every authority, made Him sovereign over everything in heaven and on earth. Father, that's more power than I could ever need. And You've given it to me. Thank You, Father, that I'm no longer a slave to sin. That's Your promise to me. That sin has no power over me. That You have given me everything that I need for life and godliness through the knowledge of You. So Father, the next time I'm tempted to indulge in this persistent sin, please remind me of the things that You've already told me. Please remind me of what's true. Father, I'm dependent on Your Holy Spirit to bring to mind the things that You have said. Which of those two prayers do you think is more likely to be accompanied by a change of behavior? Do you see the difference? 
the mindset that's aligned with the truth of our resurrection life, it depends on what we fill our heads with. It depends on what we talk to God about. And, and beloved, it depends on what we talk to each other about. Isn't that exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3? He says, be filled with the Spirit. And he says, he says, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God in everything, giving thanks. One of the best things, one of the most powerful things that you and I do for each other is we we help fill each other's thoughts and prayers and hearts with that which God says is true. I can tell you, the brothers and sisters in this room have been very powerfully used by God to realign me with that which is true when I've needed it, and I need it all the time. But, but there have been so many times when, I, when I've started drifting off of the marvelous reality of the outrageous wealth that I possess in Christ, and I've had a brother in here remind me, or my, my beloved wife has reminded me. That's one of the greatest things that we do for each other. If a brother shares with you that he's, he keeps being pulled back into some besetting sin and can't seem to control it, ask him if he believes that God has given him the ability, the power to resist that temptation. If he says no, lovingly take him back to the truth that God has declared. Show him again, remind him that he died to sin when he was brought into union with Christ and he has been raised in Christ to newness of life and he is filled with the, he is, has the Spirit of God indwelling him and he has all the power that he needs to resist that sin. Don't pat him on the back and tell him you understand. Point him to the truth. God has given us resurrection life, resurrection power. And He delights in seeing us believe that we have those things and act in keeping with it, with that marvelous reality. We've got to stop buying into lies that cripple us and simply count as true what God says to be true. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter what is behind you. It doesn't matter how many years you've been repeating the same sin. Because our God is a God of renewal and redemption, of new life. He's a God who is in the process of conforming us to Christ. He is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. And He intends for us to believe Him. Where does the Bible fit in all this? Everywhere. Everywhere. We cannot know and lay claim to the things that are true of us if we don't even know what they are. And again, it doesn't suffice that you read it once. A young man who was not a believer said, I've read the Bible. I said, that's a good start. Now, it's, it's about a lifetime of living on our necessary food which is the Word of God every single day. 
we need for God to, to daily change our minds. This isn't once and done. This is something that has to be renewed every single day. All right. What if you're still dead? How does all this apply to you if you, if you are still depending on yourself to become acceptable to God? If you think that you really don't need all this stuff and you don't need Christ and you're doing okay and you're good enough and you're, you know, you're kind to people and guys, if, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, as the one and only source of righteousness that is satisfying to God, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as the only one who can and has paid the eternal debt of your sin to God, then none of this applies to you. None of it. You can't do these things. You are still enslaved to your sins, whether you feel like it or not, whether you know it or not. But the gospel is the most important thing you will ever hear. And if you, you, if you are here today and any of that describes you, I pray that today will be the day of your salvation. Today will be the day that you confess to God that you're a sinner, stuck in sin, that you are actually defined by sin. And that you'll trust in the only one who can deliver you from yourself and from your sin and impute to you the righteousness of Christ. That means He takes Christ's righteousness and He covers you with it. And from the time you come to faith in Christ, when God looks at you, He sees Christ's righteousness because He he will have taken your sin and put it on Christ. And Jesus paid it all. Uh, I hope this makes sense, guys. I... I've been thinking about this a lot. It came, it really came as a result of, uh, of the study of Ephesians and then here was Easter. And I kept thinking about the reality that Paul sets before us in Ephesians, this new man. And how so often Christians just don't see themselves that way. And, and they try to overcome sin by the, by the power of their will. And that just won't do it. We have to see ourselves as God sees us. And we have to, we have to bank on that. We have to count on that. We have to consider it to be true every day that we died with Christ and we're raised with Him to newness of life. And that our true nature, it's Christ's righteousness that He's given to us. You know what the definition of hypocrisy is? It's when you mask something that's true. Hypocrisy for a Christian is living as if you are not righteous. And you know what Satan wants you to believe? He wants you to believe that hypocrisy is living as if you are righteous when you're not. We need to have a different definition. We need to have God's definitions. The greatest hypocrisy for a Christian is living as if he is not recreated in holiness and righteousness instead of living as if he is or she is. I want to close by uh, asking you guys to pray with me out loud uh, Galatians 2 verse 20. 
There are just a handful of verses that God hits me with almost every day in my Christian life, and this is one of them. So um, as we close, pray with me. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Dear Father, we proclaim this to be true because it is true. And we thank You that this is the reality that You've made true of us in Jesus. We pray, exalting His name, all the praise, all the glory goes to Him. Amen.